All right, good morning, Four Oaks. Pastor Paul, so glad that you are here. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Watched a very fascinating documentary this week on Netflix, The Greatest Party That Never Happened. It's the story of this concert event called the Fry Music Festival. It was to be the concert of the century. It was to be on a private island in the Bahamas. Um, it was the brainchild of a promoter named Billy McFarland. And the idea that they were going to come to this remote island in the Bahamas, thousands of people, some of the greatest rock bands um, stories in the world. And this wasn't just going to be any rock festival. This was not some Woodstock pigs in a sty sleeping in the open field. This is like people paying thousands of dollars to sleep in bungalows on the beach. You would take these private cruises. You would have these gourmet meals. You would, in fact, people were spending thousands of dollars, $12,000 a, a ticket in some circumstances. And it was promising to be the social event of the season. I mean, there were famous celebrities promoting this. And so when, as the time of the, the concert approached, there was concerns kind of within the leadership of this, of this festival that they weren't going to be able to pull it off, but they continued to plow forward and promise big things, great things. And so the time for the, the festival finally arrived, and students, college students, young adults, been arriving by the thousands to the beach only to find that what they were given to eat was a sandwich with cheese and not even melted cheese, okay? And they were living not in bungalows, but in FEMA tents left over from Hurricane Michael. They were, these tents, in fact, had already been destroyed once by this huge storm that had come through. And what they found within the space of 24 hours was this was a humanitarian crisis. This happened about five years ago. It was, it was splashed all over, all over the world. And in the midst of this, there is Billy McFarland. He had over-promised and under-delivered all the way to prison. All right, it's a fascinating documentary. I have to be, I'll tell you the story. I felt a little like Billy McFarland working on this sermon this week of over-promising and under-delivering. After we preached Romans 13 part one last week, how we as Christians and uh, the church are to engage the government and the civil authorities. We said a lot, but I said we need to say some more. And so part two is coming up. And I cannot tell you how many people this week, maybe a record number was like, that first part was fine, Pastor Paul, great, whatever. But we're really ready to hear, okay, part two. And so what I want to say is I hope I have not led us out to the deserted island with cheese sandwiches and porta potties, okay? So... What's, of course, got everybody worked up when we talk about Romans 13? Number one, it's a political season, right? We have a, a big election, aren't they all big, coming up in November. But probably even more than that, there's, there's the specter of the last 30 months that are sort of kind of looming behind us, aren't they? We've just sort of come out of this massive COVID season, and, and, you, and there were so many issues to, that that we worked through as a church and culture and the church at large. But if you really want to boil it down, right, the meta-narrative of so much of that season was, what should the role of the government be? And what should it not be? What, what, what should we as Christians do and what should we not do? And, and what do we do when the government says this, but we think God might be saying that? 
And this, of course, became the meta issue with lockdowns, mandates, masks, quarantines, gatherings, vaccines, keeping six feet distant, all of that stuff. Now, understanding something, though, church, we need to be encouraged by this. This is not a new issue for the church. Christians, God's people, for thousands of years have been wrestling through how is it we are to faithfully, as citizens of the kingdom, engage the kingdom of the world? How are, how are we to work those things out? We saw this, of course, in the first century with Christians who were commanded to bow down to Caesar in worship, and they were so persecuted they had to go underground to the catacombs to worship. We, of course, saw it with Martin Luther and the Holy Roman Empire. Nobody was more pro-government than Martin Luther. But at the end of the day, he had to stand up and say, my, my conscience is bound by the word of God. And when the word of the emperor and the word of God conflict, I have to cast my lot with the word of God. Of course, even more recently, you could say that the civil rights movement in United States was in many ways a religious movement sparked by biblical issues of social justice. So this is not new to the church. Now last week what we did is we unpacked Romans 13 in detail. And I'm not going to go back and re-preach that sermon, go back and listen to it because it's important though that you know kind of what's there because it's the foundation of everything that we're going to talk about here. Paul, in essence, if you want to boil Romans 13 down, as he describes the fundamental posture and relationship you and I are to have to the governing authorities, the civil authorities that God has put into our life, if you want to boil it down to one word, what is that word? Rebel. No, submit, okay? We're such Americans, right? No, submit. Paul says, make it your ambition to embrace the God-given authorities in your life. They've been put there by God for your protection, for your good, for your flourishing. And the reason Paul makes such a point of this, I think, and if you read Romans 12 and 13, kind of in context as a letter, you understand Paul's great concern for the church in Rome is that they be respectable. And by respectable, I don't mean nice. What I mean is he wants them to lead quiet, orderly lives so as to communicate that we are a part of this world. We love our city. We love our emperor. We love our, we love our rulers. We're not, we're not here to sow sedition. We are not here to be revolutionaries. We're not leading an uprising. We are here to live quiet, ordinary lives because Paul says our, our predominant concern as believers, as a church, as Christians, is the gospel. And we want to be doing everything we can to remove every obstacle we can to the culture around us that people can see Jesus. And so Paul says, that's your baseline posture, to walk quietly in submission, to recognize the God-given authorities in your life, to be respectable neighbors and citizens that, those, that people can look to and say, they, they are here for the betterment of our culture and our city. Yet, there's something even deeper lurking in the text, right? And Paul doesn't go into it here, but it's something that I think is very supernaturally subversive, if I can use those terms, 
as you're reading this text. Now remember, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome knowing there are members of Caesar's household in the church, which means that in a sense, Caesar is looking over their shoulder and so to speak, and listening to, to what these crazy Christians are having to say. And what Paul makes very clear, though, is that as much as we are to respect and honor and submit to the governing authorities, ultimately, there is only one King of kings and Lord of lords. That is Jesus. All human authority comes from God. And guess what? Even Caesar. See, that's, that's the subtext of that, of that passage, right? Caesar, you may be the most powerful man in the world, but you too are under God. You too are under authority. And your job is to be the law keeper, to reward those who keep the law, to punish those who break it, to promote peace and order. But what, of course, remains unanswered from this text is simply this. What happens, Apostle Paul, when that doesn't happen? What happens when injustice is perpetrated by the people who are supposed to be promoting justice? What happens when the evil are rewarded and the righteous are punished? See, we unpacked Romans 13 to say, here is the normative baseline position for the believer for their specific time and their specific context of the church in Rome. But Paul doesn't say everything that could be said about this, right? And see, this is the difference in what we would call biblical theology and systematic theology. Biblical theology is understanding the storyline of the Bible, reading the books in context, like preaching through them like we do. But systematic theology is trying to understand what do the scriptures as a whole say about any particular topic. And that's a really important venture for us because we need to understand not only what Paul has to say about the government, but also Peter and Daniel and Jesus and the prophets. And this is going to be our task this morning. So let's read Romans 13, 1 through 7 together once more. It's our baseline text. I'm going to invite you to stand. And then we're going to use this as a launching off point to see what the rest of God's word has to say about this very critical issue. Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience." For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities and are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay, all, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let's pray. Father, we want to be obedient to that. We do want to respect, we do want to honor, we do want to submit. 
But Lord, now we are asking as your people to also show us what does it mean to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven? What does it mean to walk faithfully as you, as our supreme king? Lord, what are we to do when what you tell us to do is in conflict with the authorities that you have set up are telling us to do? Lord, we need help. We need real wisdom. And so, Father, I pray that you would temper my tongue, that I might speak only what is true and good and right and wise from your word. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Please take your seats. Here are the two points. First of all, sort of as a broad category, we're going to look at this issue of responding when God and the government are at odds. How are we to respond? And then number two, how do we engage the government with the truths of God? Now, those points are just loaded with all sorts of assumptions. And let me just, let me just give you a couple of caveats as we dive in here. You may say, well, Paul, Pastor Paul, that's awfully presumptuous of you, equating your perspective with God when the God and the government are at odds. How do you know what God wants to do? Please understand something, that I'm speaking this morning by virtue of my convictions of what the Word of God teaches in these things. Please understand that I also am a man under authority, and that I don't pretend to speak for any and all of the elders as it relates to our understanding, but particularly our application of these things. And that's okay, because you are blessed with a group of elders whose fundamental commitment is to the gospel and the word of God, and we are prayerfully always asking, how do these things apply? Please understand that, that what I'm going to say this morning is not part of our statement of faith. Our statement of faith affirms Romans 13, absolutely. But these nuances and applications, these are my best effort before God to communicate to you what I believe the Word of God teaches about these things. So I commend you to the Scriptures. I also um, commend myself to our elders, Meaning that if there is a point in time in any of this where any of them might say, well, I don't agree with what you said here, or maybe the way you said this, or the way that you say that, I don't presume, okay, to speak on behalf of Four Oaks Church. At the same time, these are my convictions, so, and, I, and I really hope by them I will push all of us towards the Word of God. That's the first caveat. second caveat is this. If you were here last week and you've thought one iota about this since last week, I promise you there's, there's some question that you've come in here this morning with. And by that, what I mean is there's something that you would like me to answer or talk about. I don't know what that is, but I know most of us have one of those things. And the odds are I probably won't speak about your thing, although I might, okay? And that's okay, because we, we have a limited amount of time. But if there's something I don't address this morning or don't address to your um, satisfaction in terms of thoroughness, just email me. Um, this, will be a, this will be a thing we'll dive into in our pastoral devotionals. Um, it's tailor-made um, when I do these during the weekday to, to address these kinds of things. By the way, no pastoral devotionals this week because it's fall break, but the following week, October 17th, we'll be back into it. Okay, no more caveats. All right, no more caveats. Let's get into the word. 
Responding when God and government at odds, and I want us to consider two questions under this main point, okay? Here are the two questions. These formulations aren't unique to me. Uh, Many have formulated them in these ways, and here they are. Question number one, what do we do when the government commands what God forbids? What do we do when the government commands what God forbids? Conversely, and this is related but not the same thing, what do we do when government forbids what God commands? Hey, the, 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 they're related, there's overlap, but there are distinctions, as I think you will see. So those are our two questions under this first point I want us to use as sort of a heading. What do we do when the government commands what God forbids? There are some super obvious examples from Scripture. So open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. The Israelites are in captivity in Babylon. This is a pagan empire worshiping a multitude of different kinds of gods. And in this text, the people are commanded to worship and pay public allegiance to a statue of Nebuchadnezzar. That even freaks me out. Would you want somebody to build a statue of you out in public? I mean, it would be like the dome reflecting the light. I, I just, it creeps me out, okay? And if you don't bow down to this, I mean, you can, worship, you can do whatever you want in your private life. But when it push comes to shove, you bow that knee to that statue, and we won't throw you into the pit. But if you don't bow down into the furnace, you will go. Daniel 3. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all of those folks were at that fire festival, by the way, okay? You are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. It couldn't be more clear or black and white, could it? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we know, refused. And for their part, there was no negotiation. There was no compromise. There was no bending the knee, but not letting it touch the ground so as to slide by, by, by a, you know, a, a legality, right? They, this wasn't, I'm kneeling on the outside, but inside I'm standing up, Nebuchadnezzar. There's none of that. They said, we cannot do it. You have commanded it to be done in order to be obedient to God. We must disobey. And it says that they were tossed into the furnace. Now, they also were unharmed. But that's not the point of the story, because we know throughout the centuries, often God's people don't go unharmed, do they? That's, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that they disobeyed, and that to not disobey would have mean they would have been disobedient to God. All right, second example, Exodus 1. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So here we are, we're in Old Testament Israel, 
The people of Israel are captive in the land of Egypt. They're two million strong. They're multiplying like crazy. Pharaoh said, we can't have this. He instructs the midwives, the Hebrew midwives to say, if a girl is born, that's fine. But if a son is born, you are to immediately put him to death. And we didn't read this part, but we know they go on to refuse the king. And in fact, do they not only refuse the king, they, they actually lie about it. Okay, they lie about it. It's called the righteous lie. And lest you, you stumble on the ethics of that, what does it say in verse 20? God dealt well with the midwives. He approved of their disobedience all of it. Now, what do we draw from those two examples? You could say, and this would not be untrue, there are certain things worth dying for, right? And, 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 and that's fine, there, of course. Most, we, we would die with our, for our families, our kids. If the roof was collapsing, one of you brave souls might die for all of us, right, till we could escape. I mean, there, there's a number of scenarios that we could say, yes, there are things that, we, that are worth dying for. But that's not the point here, because even non-Christians can do that. Even non-Christians would agree there are things worth dying for. The crucial point here is that there are certain things God calls us to do that will require us to disobey the government. That's the point. Sometimes at a high cost, sometimes it might be lives, sometimes it might be your livelihood, sometimes it might be your relationships, your checkbook, your pocketbook. And please understand something, this was not theoretical for the church in Rome. Let's remember who Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about rulers in the abstract. He's talking about Caesar, and not just any Caesar. He's talking about the most ruthless Caesar probably ever, Nero. This is the man who nailed up Christians, impaled them on spikes in his garden, set them on fire to make light for his garden. This is the man who commanded emperor worship. In fact, it Nero, in his administration, it was the beginnings of this trend that we see really come to fruition when John, the Apostle John, is writing 30 years later, the book of Revelation, and this, in fact, was exactly what was happening. People were required to bow down and worship Caesar, and it was either a yes or a no. It was a black or it was a white, and they had to make a decision, and what is John's admonition for them? Persevere. Do not deny me. Be strong. Be faithful. Remember, they were not only asked to worship Caesar, they were also asked to acknowledge the local deity, so for the, the patron god. So if you were a fisherman and you lived on the seashore and you did fish, fishing for a living, then you had to pay homage to Poseidon. It doesn't mean you couldn't worship your other gods. It means, though, that you had to worship, that you had to honor Poseidon. And if you didn't, you were cut out. If you didn't, you were, you, were, you were out of luck. You had no way to make a living. You had no way to eat. And the, and the theme of Revelation over and over and over is be faithful. 
Be obedient, even when that causes you to be disobedient to government. So it wasn't theoretical for the church in Rome. And guys, it's never been theoretical for the church, right? It wasn't theoretical for Christians in Nazi Germany. Guys, we know that the large majority of Christian leaders and church authorities in the 1930s in Germany, although they may have said otherwise, they knew exactly what was happening. They knew exactly what was happening to Jews, to gypsies, to the mentally handicapped, to ethnic minorities, and they simply did not speak up. A significant minority did. Men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who did take a stand and was involved in trying to undermine this evil, wicked government at the cost of his life. He died in the last month of the war, hung up by a piano wire from a cell. This was not, it's never been theoretical for the church, right? So the question becomes, Pastor Paul, when should we disobey? When should we disobey? It's impossible to be exhausted, but I just thought of a few things that I think would be examples if you were asking me where I believe we must follow the Lord into obedience. If we as a church, for example, were required, mandated to recognize same-sex marriage, we would say no. If as a woman, you are required to abort your baby because you exceed population limits for families, as it has been in China, we say no. As a doctor, when you are required to affirm non-binary understanding of human sexuality and applying that transgender ideology to minors, I believe you have an obligation, a duty to say no. And as we think about this, to, and these are just three examples, but as we think about this, none of us are off the hook. All of us are going to have to be confronted with this and wrestle with it ahead of time. Matthew 10 is a great passage. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Just a little, little application point before we leave this question. Where in your life might you be in functional denial of the Lordship of Christ? Where, where, where in your life, by virtue of your obedience or disobedience to the things of the world or the things of God, has set you at odds in such a way that you know that you're being disobedient to the Lord. Question number two. We first, first question, what do we do when the government commands what God forbids? This second question, can I just say, that, that was the easy one, the first one. Okay, that was the easy one. This is the hard one. What do we do when the government forbids what God commands? And this is why this is more difficult. See, when, when, when the government commands you to do something, it's black or white, yes or no, right or wrong, I'll do it, I won't do it, right? It's quite another when you're simply forbidden to do what God has commanded. It's just easier to kind of be passive in that one, right? 
just kind of go along, to get along, to fly under the radar. And it can be much trickier and circumstantial in terms of deciding when to disobey and when not to disobey. Thankfully, the scriptures are not silent on this one either. So, so two, two very specific examples of people ignoring the censure of government or government forbidding in order to be obedient to what God commands. So the first one is in Daniel chapter 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction. Here it is. That whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Second example, and we're going to say something about both of these. Acts 4. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you be judge. For we cannot bespeak of what we have seen and heard. So here we have the first example. The officials concocted a scheme. They clearly did not like Daniel. If you want a case study on what it means to render under to Caesar what's Caesar's and render under to God's what's God's, study the book of Daniel. Daniel lived in submission, but his highest authority was to the Lord. And so they convinced Darius to make a law. And the law was simply this. If anybody prays to anyone else but you, he is going to the lion's den. Now, at that point, Daniel would have had certain workarounds, right? All, he's, all the edict says is, don't pray. Daniel's like, I'll go in my room and pray. I'll pray in private. I'll pray in secret. I'll pray within my heart. Doesn't that honor the letter of the law here? But it would have dishonored God. Why? Look back at the text. It would have altered what he had done previously. I want, you, I want to ask you a question. See, some people say, this is just Daniel's spiritual, pardon me, middle finger to Darius, right? Just, I'm, I'm laying it out there, I'm in your face, I'm disobeying. That's not what's happening here. How did they know that Daniel prayed every day? Because he did the same thing over and over. He would walk up those stairs, open those doors, face Jerusalem, and pray. And that's what he always did. And so when Daniel heard the edict, Daniel didn't do anything differently. He just kept being faithful. That was his normal practice. But for Daniel to be unfaithful would have been to stop what he was currently doing. Do you see? See, Darius had forbidden it. And Daniel's not trying to flaunt it. Daniel's not trying to hide it. Daniel is simply saying, I want to be 
faithful. And faithfulness in this area is going to require me to do something that the government forbids because I am compelled to do something that God commands. All right, second example here. Look at the apostles. What really got the apostles in trouble? As much as it might have bothered the Pharisees and the religious rulers that there was this little sect of, of Christians over here doing their little thing, as much as that might have bothered them, here's what really got them. What got them is that these Christians were preaching in public. And when they were preaching in public, people were responding. They were coming to Jesus in faith. And they were incredibly jealous, these religious leaders. This could not be tolerated. They had to stop. And they told them, you can no longer come out in public and preach in the temple area. But what does it say here? They felt compelled to disobey. And again, how easy it would have been to not. They simply could have said, oh, we're just going to teach in private. See, we're working. We're, we're, not, we're not really bowing the knee. See, we're not really capitulating. We're, we're, we're over here teaching in private. We're teaching in one-on-one. We're in small groups. But the point was, they felt compelled to do what God had called them to do. Undoubtedly, the Great Commission is ringing in their ears. Go therefore into all the nations, preaching and teaching what I have commanded you. They couldn't do that from the privacy of a meeting room. They kept doing what they were doing. This is a hard issue because let's be honest. As much as there are times when you're asked to do something, right, that God has forbidden, we need to affirm this, sign this, worship this. It's much, much more likely that we will be asked not to do something in this culture. Because I can absolutely foresee a time, right? And by the way, this is, this is already the case for our brothers and sisters in Christ in many parts of the world, even in Western Europe, where we as a church might be forbidden to teach or preach certain doctrines, whether it's the exclusivity of Christ or same-sex marriage or transgenderism. And a lot of you have said, well, Pastor Paul, now if that happened, we wouldn't be silent, would we? And what you mean is you wouldn't be silent, would you, right? I won't be. Just write me in jail. Please visit me, all right? Now, we, we joke a little about this because you do realize just as much as they track down murderers 30 years later because of DNA, what we're saying today here is in the cloud forever. And don't even think that that is not something that all of us will have to contend with, your social media. It goes beyond me. Your social media posts, what you've said, what you've taught, what you've done. And goes, I'm not saying that from a conspiracy standpoint or I'm looking into the crystal ball. I'm just saying this is reality, right? Now, a second one that I, can, that I want to talk about here, and I, and I do think, and I want to mention this one because this one has probably been the most common one that you have talked to me about or asked me about within the context of our cultural climate, and it's simply this. Pastor Paul, what if there's ever a time again where we are forbidden together for church and worship? How, how are we to think about that? Let me say a couple things. 
crystal clear from Scripture, we are called and commanded to gather for worship as believers. It's not an option. It's not a multiple choice. It's not a checkbox once a quarter. This is the writer of Hebrews, do not forsake the assembling together. It's a command. How we exercise that command, obviously, is open to a whole host of things. The Westminster Confession of Faith, nonetheless, says, no less than the Westminster Confession of Faith, says we, we do these things by the light of nature. And so what this means is logistically how we gather to worship could look a variety of different ways. Inside, outside, time of day, how big, multiple services, small services. And I think we have to recognize there could be good reasons logistically to flex when government warns us of a hurricane or there's an invasion by foreign forces or, and this is my personal favorite, the zombie apocalypse, right? One of those. That's logistics, though. In terms of the core of the command, an absolute prohibition on gathering, particularly when other groups can gather, or one group or event is favored over another because of political circumstances, or gathering for this rally is okay, but gathering for church service is not okay, in my fundamental opinion, is where we have to draw the line as a believer, as believers and as the church. That what God has commanded, we obey. And we, even things where, I'm trying to figure out how, how far out on the plank to go on this one, right? Okay. Well, let me, let me, simp- let me simply say this. I believe as a church, all of us being equal, it would be wrong for us to be prevented from meeting. And, and l- let me say this. I say that in full submission to my fellow elders. I don't have authority as a singular person to make all these decisions as it relates to logistics and otherwise, but I do believe in that room, I would, this is what I would say. We have a fundamental calling to obey God at precisely this point. Let me give you a sec- second example. What about Jim Crow and segregation? You live in 1950s United States, and there are laws that say you can't sit there if you're an African-American, you can't drink from that fountain, you can't access those facilities. In other words, the government is not requiring you to do something, it's just forbidding. It's just saying, stay in your lane. And before you say, Oh, but Pastor Paul, if I would live in the 1950s, I would be on the front lines of the Crusades. You probably wouldn't. You probably, you, maybe you would, and by God's grace, maybe I would. But we, we forget what a, pop, how, what a powerful social pressure contagion there is. And it would be just as easy like those pastors in Nazi Germany, and the populace, by the way, just to keep your head down, right? Go along to get along. My perspective has been really informed on this. I've read a book, been reading a book, still am reading a book about Emmett Till. Emmett was a 14-year-old African-American boy, boy, who grew up in Chicago, but in 1955 went to Mississippi to visit his cousins. 
and while there made some sort of inappropriate um, social faux pas with a white woman, said something, did something, and two white men ended up kidnapping him, absconding with him in the middle of the night, took him, beat him to a pulp, lynched him, threw his body in a river, and tied it to a cotton gin fan so he wouldn't be found for three days. And the subsequent trial of the two men who were accused of this crime was all male, all white jury, and they found him, not unsurprisingly, not guilty. Not because they didn't think he was guilty. These guys were the O.J. Simpson of the 1950s, right? Not because they didn't think he was guilty, but it was, we're sending a message here. Those Yankees, those are the folk, they need to stay out of our business. They need to let us do our own thing, enact our own system of justice. It was a perfect example of what we might call systemic injustice. And guys, as Christians, we shouldn't be afraid of that term. If people are sinful, then the systems that sinful people will create are sinful, right? This is not, this is not brain surgery, right? And sometimes... It can be so insidious that we feel compelled to act because of the injustice of the system. In other words, there might be something so compelling and so wicked about the present system that's so contrary to the Word of God, we are compelled to act. This, in fact, is what has been happening in the pro-life movement over the last 50 years. We said we will not be silent. We cannot be silent. We think this is the civil rights issue of the day. There are some times when injustice is so prevalent, the scriptures require us to act, to ignore the commands of government. And guys, knowing when and how and in what time and circumstances, can I just say this is what the body of Christ is for? Everybody's social justice issue doesn't have to be the same, with the same fervor or the same intensity. There are times, I mean, you can, on social media, you can see somebody might post something about this and immediately what's the response? Well, what about that? You didn't say anything about that. You didn't say anything about this. You didn't say anything about that. This is where we need the body of Christ, right? Where so many of you have so many different areas of, of, of passion and fervency for justice in the name of the word of God, we need each other. Which brings me to our last point. This is going to be really quick. What does this look like, Pastor Paul? What, what, what does this mean to engage government with the truths of God? And I, I want to bullet out six, five just super quick things here for us to sort of guide us as we think about these things personally as a church going forward. And let me say this, I'm amazed at how many times in Scripture there are actually examples of Christians appealing to the processes of government in order to get around the laws that have been given to them. And do you know who was the chief dude who did this constantly? The Apostle Paul. Isn't that interesting? The Apostle Paul, the same guy who wrote in Romans 13, Submit to the Authorities, here, listen to what he says in Acts 22. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, 
Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. Come on, Paul, why didn't you submit? Take your 39 lashes. That's not what Paul did. This was an injustice and using the authority structure of, that he was a part of, he appealed to fight that particular injustice. This also happened, remember, in Acts 25, when he is standing trial before Festus, and he smells out really quickly, Festus is crooked. He's trying to appease the Jews. Paul doesn't think he's going to get a fair trial. And what does Paul say? Oh, Festus, take me up to Jerusalem and feed me to the wolves. Is that what he says? He says, no way. I'm appealing to Caesar. Get me, get me to Rome. Get me to safety. Guys, I say all that to say I commend us as the body of Christ within the system that we operate and the governments that we are a part of to work for change. And so here are five quick, super quick principles. Number one, this should go without saying, be active. Because a lot of people will say you can't legislate morality or Christians shouldn't bring their values into the public square. Guys, everybody brings their values to the public square. Every law is a legislation of morality. Can you imagine if William Wilberforce had said this? He was single-handedly over, the, over a, a whole political life of single-handedly being responsible for helping to abolish the slave trade in Great Britain. And by Great Britain, we mean the whole empire. At great political costs. Martin Luther King and civil rights. The, we could go on and on and on. This is a valid endeavor for us as the body of Christ as citizens of the kingdom of heaven and as citizens of the kingdom of, of earth. So be active. Number two, be realistic. Remember, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Okay? This kingdom is perishing. There is no perfect government system. We are flawed, we are sinful, which means governments will be flawed and sinful, there is a limit to what human politics can achieve. How many times have you said, this election is the most important of our lifetime, right? And some of you are saying, but it really is this time, Pastor Paul. It really is. No. No. Be realistic. Number, number three, be obedient. And I mean specifically in the area of physical violence. Jesus, when he was being taken away, Peter took out the sword, chopped off the ear, and what does Jesus say? Put your sword up. My kingdom is not of this world. This goes to whether it's the, the riots of the summer of 2020 or the riots of January 6th. Violence is never an option for the people of God unless somebody has the sword at your throat. Number four, this is a big one, be gracious. Be gracious. Because I want to talk about the 2020 election. You knew I couldn't let this slide by without talking about this. There, there, there are some who would say in here, the previous president was not morally, he was morally unqualified to be president. And guess what? John Piper would agree with you. John Piper also would also say his opponent was unqualified because he held the pro-choice position. So I don't know where that leaves him, but that, that's his position. And there's some of you who are 
who are staunchly that. There's others of you who are saying, well, wait, wait a minute, it's not so easy. We're living in the real world, Pastor Paul. One of these two guys was going to be our president. And look at what's happened. The previous president nominated three Supreme Court justices who overturned Roe v. Wade. Can't, can't you see that we have to implement a, set, a, a, a pragmatic principle here? Well, people on the other side would say, but wait a minute. Do the ends ever justify the means? Can God not build his kingdom in any way that he wants? I simply raise that issue to say that debate of character versus policy, be gracious to each other. Be gracious. Be kind. You, it's a complex issue, and people feel like they're biblically informed on both. It doesn't mean that I think both are equally right. That's, that's a different issue. But be gracious in the body of Christ. Number four, five, be humble. Guys, when that time comes to drive the money changers out of the temple, let it be love and not vengeance that motivates us. I love this quote from John Piper. We are people of the cross. Our Lord submitted to crucifixion willingly to save his enemies. We owe our eternal life to him. We are forgiven sinners. This takes the swagger out of our protest. It takes the arrogance out of our resistance. And if after every other means has failed, we must disobey for the sake of love and justice, we will first remove the log from our own eye, which will cause enough pain and tears to soften our indignation into a humble, quiet, but unshakable no. The greatest battle we face is not overcoming unjust laws, but becoming this kind of people. I'll swallow hard on this last one. God is more concerned with our humility and self-denial and trust in Christ than he is about our civil liberties. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. I have a grand plan. It's to conform you to the image of Christ. And the most important foundational priority for every believer is the gospel. Jesus says, that's why I didn't say no. This is why I didn't call, command to call the angels down. This is why I went willingly, submissively, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, at the hands of the evil, wicked authorities, because there was a greater good. And thank God for Oaks that he did. And we want to walk in that path and look to Jesus, the author and perfecter, of our faith. Let's pray.